Good morning again. Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 81. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, Psalm 81. Uh, as you know, uh, if you've been here, that we are working through the Psalms. Uh, we've been uh, not hitting every Psalm, but hitting a number of Psalms on our way, and we plan to keep working through the Psalms uh, really through the, the summer. So we're um, hitting at least one every 10 or so. Uh, so that we get a flavor for the whole book of Psalms. Uh, Before we read Psalm 81 together, let's pray together. Our Father, we uh, we do need you, and uh, we need your spirit, we need your grace, we need you now. I need you so that I can speak what is true, Uh, We need you collectively so that we can hear your word, uh, that we give us discernment, Father, uh, to know what is right and good and true and to cling to that. And if anything that I say is is neither right nor true, we pray that we would uh, quickly uh, set that aside and uh, help us to cling to the truth and to live by the truth and to be changed by the truth. Help us to see Jesus, uh, to see his glory uh, in your word and help us to be changed by that glory. Uh, Pour out your Holy Spirit now to those ends. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 81. To the choir master, according to the Giddith of Asaph. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In in distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the, uh, open your wide mouth, open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. God wants you to be happy. That is simultaneously one of the most profound truths and hellish lies in history. When it comes to that statement, the devil really is in the details. So we lie to ourselves when we say, God wants me to be happy, so I'll cheat on my taxes, or cheat on my wife, or spend all my time binging Netflix, or spend all my money on me. 
We can justify anything with the unqualified statement, God wants me to be happy. And yet there's still some truth in that statement. God does want us to be happy. God wants us to be happy in Him. This is one of the great themes of the Psalms, delight in our God. It's the theme that we're going to look at this morning. We're really going to be looking at a question, though. If God wants me to be happy in Him, how does that happen? How do we delight in our God? And from this psalm, at least, we see four things. Uh, First, uh, sing the songs of deliverance. Second, listen and be satisfied. Three, beware your stubborn heart. And four, let the heart of God fuel your song. So those are our four points on our outline this morning. You can see them in the bulletin. Sing the songs of deliverance. Listen and be satisfied. Beware your stubborn heart. And let the heart of God fuel your song. First, sing the songs of deliverance. Why do we sing? We don't sing much in our culture per se. We have lots of songs, uh, but we don't all sing, at least not out of the shower. Uh, The purpose of singing, though, is to express our emotions. It's to express how you feel about something. And that is true whether you are singing a funeral dirge or happy birthday. Even with a lullaby, right, you're seeking to communicate an emotional state to your child. And it's effective, at least a lot more effective than saying to your newborn child, please, please, please go to sleep. (laughs) That doesn't work. (laughs) Trust me. (laughs) Songs communicate truths, but they don't just communicate truths in in a propositional way. They communicate not only the truth, but the emotional content of that truth. They communicate how to think about that truth, or rather how to feel about it. The Psalms were all songs. This psalm is a psalm of Asaph, by the way. Asaph was one of the three men that David uh, put in charge of the the service of song in the tabernacle. He was what uh, people might nowadays call a minister of music. And right here he does part of his job. He exhorts the people of God to sing. He exhorts them to express their joy in song. Uh, The psalm begins with this rousing call to sing in verses 1 through 3. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. See, Asaph encourages God's people to burst into joyful song. But why should Israel burst out in song? I mean, why should we live as if life were Fiddler on the Roof or the Greatest Showman? Well, Asaph tells us that too. He says in verses 6 to 7 that God relieved Israel's shoulder of the burden and freed their hands from the basket. In distress, they called, verse 7, and God delivered. Asaph reminds them of the Exodus, how God heard his people's call for help and delivered them from slavery. He answered them in the secret place of thunder, which likely refers to Mount Sinai, a place of really frightening thunder and lightning for Israel, but a place where God met with his people after bringing them out of Egypt. Asaph wants Israel to sing and shout, to sing and shout because of God's past mercies, 
because he had saved them from slavery. God had delivered them from their burden. God had defeated their enemies. God had brought them to himself, to a place of nearness to God, even if it was a bit terrifying at the time. And Asaph says, this is the reason to sing. Now, can I say right away, if, if Israel had reason to sing, uh, we have a greater one. We have been delivered not from physical bondage, but spiritual. Not from slavery to Egypt, but from slavery to sin. God has delivered us, not from the temporal death that Israel faced as they stood uh, between the army of Egypt behind them and the Red Sea before them. No, he has delivered us from the eternal death of judgment and hell through the cross. God has brought us not to Mount Sinai with its terrible thunder and lightning and the imposing judgment of the law, but God has brought us, Hebrews says, to the heavenly Mount Zion. We have been raised with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places. We don't just stand at the foot of the mountain trembling as subjects of the holy God, but through Christ we draw near into the most holy place as deliriously delighted children of the heavenly Father who have access to his throne of grace. The remembrance of this deliverance gives us a constant reason to sing and shout. And so as Israel here and in many other psalms sings about God's compassion and mercy and their deliverance from Egypt, so we sing about God's compassion and mercy shown in our deliverance at the cross. This is one of the ways that we delight in our Father. Singing to our God about His work moves our hearts and brings joy. If you know the depth of your sin and the weight of God's justice, you know that the cross is breathtaking. God's mercy is moving. There the sinless one gave his life for the sinful ones. God gave his life for man. Creator bore the sin of his creatures. The Father loved us at the cost of his own Son. Jesus loved us more than life itself. This is a love which burns in our souls and bursts out in song. God's mercies move us to sing. And, and let me encourage you in, in kind of a, a very practical way, right, to find music that is doctrinally rich and moves your soul. The kind of music that when you're listening alone in the car, you would sing at the top of your lungs. See, we, we hope, right, we hope our music here is moving, but we also know that not everyone uh, will be moved by the same styles, and that's okay. Find doctrinally sound music that speaks to your soul and sing it with all your heart. Why? Well, because you, you want to find music that gives expression to the delight of your soul. Uh, when I graduated college, a, a friend of mine, this is college, not seminary, when I graduated from art school, a friend of mine gave me a Trinity hymnal. And he wrote in the front, no battle would be complete without a marching tune. So here's 742 of them. <laughs> That's what we need, right? a song to both express our hearts and to drive us on. And if you have kids, right, it's, it's all the more important that you sing with them, right? especially songs that rejoice in the Savior, that they would learn to associate joy and delight with their God. Is there a danger of delighting in the music rather than the God you're singing about? I guess there is, but there is a greater danger of being unmoved, the danger of not singing, as God exhorts us to do here. There's a danger of disassociating joy with God 
and thinking that mirth is the realm of the world. I mean, just read about the singing and dancing of Israel when God brought them out of Egypt, and you will be left without a doubt that God invented revelry, and he desires his children to delight in his work. And yet the truth is that most of us are not moved by God's mercy from moment to moment. And it's not because God's mercy is not great, but it's because our hearts become distracted. Which brings us to our next point, listen and be satisfied. Why is it that even after having been delivered from sin, its guilt and its power, we still wrestle with joy in our Father? Well, one reason that Asaph gives is we have stopped listening to our Father. Uh, we skipped over verses 4 to 5 a moment ago, but after exhorting Israel to sing and shout, Asaph says, For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. Uh, uh, he made it a decree in Joseph. And you may ask, well, what is the statute? Right? What is the rule? What is the decree that he's talking about? But Asaph doesn't answer right away. He makes us wait. First, he recounts God's history with his people. He relieved their shoulder from the burden. He delivered them from slavery. He answered them at Sinai. And then he says at the end of verse 7, he tested them at the waters of Meribah. Again, Asaph is reminding them of an incident early in the life of Israel. Uh, but this time, not such a good one. Uh, when Israel came out of Egypt, they almost immediately start to grumble. Would God provide for them in the wilderness, they wondered. Would they have the water that they need in the desert? And the very first time they grumble and, and God provides for them, we're told in Exodus 15, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, like Psalm 81, verse 4. And there he tested them, verse 7, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. God says, essentially, if you, will, if you will follow me as your God, I will bless you. And the test was, would they follow him or not? That is, would they look to God as their healer, or would they look somewhere else? And so Asaph picks up on this uh, in verse 8. He says, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. All you have to do is listen. Now, by listen, God does not merely mean hear the words. God means hear and obey. Follow me. What is it that God wants Israel to do? Well, how must Israel listen if they are to know the joy of God's care? Verses 9 and 10. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Notice again, there's an echo of Exodus here. If, uh, these words are from the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God is essentially saying this. Take me as your God and I will care for you. I brought you out of Egypt. I have taken you as my people. Now take me as your God. Look to me and I will care for you. One of the most beautiful lines, I think, in the book of Psalms is here, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. This is God's way of saying, I, I, I want to care for you. I want to provide for you. You want to be filled. Just open your mouth. Open it wide so I can fill it abundantly. 
Now, there, there is something interesting going on here because Moses says in Deuteronomy that God intentionally caused Israel to hunger in the wilderness. This is what he says in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You see, again, God's concern. He's testing their hearts to see whether they would listen to his word. Moses goes on. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might, that, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, God's primary concern is to fill us, but not with bread for our bellies, though he is our father, right? He knows what we need. He will care for those needs. But God's primary concern is for us to see that what will satisfy us is not bread for our bellies, but God himself. And listening to his voice is the means of finding satisfaction in him. God is saying, if you obey me, you, not, not if you obey me, you'll earn my love or something like that, and therefore I will satisfy you. That's not it at all. Rather, he's saying, listening, obeying is the path along which we find joy in our Father. You see, if, if we refuse to listen to God, we are by that very act seeking joy in something else other than God. By not listening, we are refusing to come to God and be filled and seeking to be filled by some other means. Uh, Jeremiah put it like this in Jeremiah 2.13. He says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says in Isaiah 55 verse 1, Come, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. And Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. But we turn from God, the fountain of living waters, and drink water from empty wells of our own making. And part of it is we don't believe that obedience, that following our God, is actually the path to drinking deeply. You know, we know that obedience doesn't earn our salvation, so we assume that obedience is not then the path to joy. But that's because we don't realize that disobedience is always an attempt to drink from empty wells. Disobedience is always me saying to God, God, I know you say this is best for me, but I really think that you're wrong. I really believe that fullness of life is found over here in this thing you forbid. So I'm going to choose this empty well rather than you the fountain of living waters. But fullness comes as we open our mouths to God that he might fill them, not as we chase the stuff of this age in hopes that it will satisfy. Right? Listen and be satisfied. And by listen and be satisfied, I really mean simply this. Right? For us, it means, it means read God's word and do what it says. This is part of the way in which you put yourself in a place to find satisfaction in your God. Disobedience is always an attempt to find satisfaction in something other than him. By obeying, you are saying to God, I want to be satisfied in you. Satisfy the deepest longings of my soul. Disobedience is a, a running from God. It, and, and so running from the satisfaction to be found in him. It's not that God stops loving me. God continues to say, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. 
But if we clamp our jaws tight and purse our lips, we remain hungry and thirsty. Let me ask, where are you looking to fill your mouth? Uh, Do you trust God to care for your body physically? Do you trust God to satisfy your soul? Where are you chasing satisfaction? What what do you look to to make you you happy and whole? Uh, Is it your job or your boyfriend or your spouse, your kids or your sex life or music or movies or video games? All of these are, are good gifts from our Father. But if you seek satisfaction in them, they are nothing but empty wells. They cannot satisfy. Which really leads us to the next point. How do we delight in God? Well, one, sing the songs of deliverance. Two, listen and be satisfied. And three, beware your stubborn heart. Verses 11 and 12 tell us that despite God's call to listen and be filled, God's people didn't listen. Uh, We really see this throughout the Old Testament. Israel regularly and repeatedly disobeys God. They do not walk in His ways. They worship foreign gods. They bow down to idols. So God says in verse 11, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Israel would not submit, right? What was the result? God gave them over. Gave them over to their stubborn hearts. God's discipline of Israel was actually to give them what they wanted. Go chase after the desires of your hearts. Go follow your own counsels. There's, I think, a kind of tremendous irony here that refusing to listen to God means becoming slaves to our own hearts and thoughts. Something we hail really as the quintessence of freedom, God calls the essence of slavery. His judgment on an unruly people was letting them do what they wanted. This happens repeatedly in the Old Testament. God regularly gives Israel what they want, which tends to end in their slavery if you read through the Old Testament. We see this as a pattern of judgment in the book of Romans. God says in Romans 1, mankind claiming to be wise became fools and chose to worship the creature rather than the creator. And so God gave them over to the lusts of their own heart. God gives us over to our stubborn hearts, either as discipline or as judgment. You see, getting what you want is not always what you want. Stubbornness never ends well. Our own counsels, our way of doing things, when in contrast to God's, never end well. And if you're running from God and getting your heart's desire, maybe even uh, life seems to be good for the moment, can I say beware? Getting what you want is not always what you want. C.S. Lewis once said that there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And he says, all that are in hell, choose it. Getting what you want is not always what you want. If what you want is not God, then Lewis says you're choosing hell. You may experience hell in this life, right, as a consequence of your sins, or you may experience Uh, Only good things in this life, but know that stubbornness has its consequences. And the worst thing that God might give you is exactly what you want, life apart from Him. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, Those who reject God and do not obey the gospel will suffer, suffer eternal punishment away from the presence of the Lord. Hell is life apart from God, apart from His presence, apart from His blessing, apart from His goodness, apart from His mercy. 
Now, of course, according to Scripture, all people deserve hell. That's not the issue here. Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have come under God's condemnation. But for his people, God gave Jesus over to the consequences of our stubborn hearts at the cross. And the question here is not who deserves hell, but who gets it in the end. And I think Lewis's answer is right. Those who insist on their own way rather than God's. Now, often when God's people insist on our own way, God might give it to us for a time. And make no mistake, that is his discipline. And at the same time as God's child, don't forget that God's discipline stems from his love. God's, God disciplines the one whom he loves, Hebrews says. And when God gives us over to our stubborn hearts and we fall flat on our faces or worse, God allows that to happen out of his love. He is training us, training us to find our satisfaction in him and not in the stuff of this life. This doesn't mean that every trial we experience is corrective discipline. All trials are meant to discipline us in the sense of train us to find our all in our God. But not, our trials, not all of our trials are corrective discipline for some specific thing that we've done, right? Discipline is not merely corrective. Athletes require discipline. But all discipline brings us in line with our Father's goodwill for our lives. Now, you might wonder, okay, well, how do I know whether the trials I'm experiencing are, are God's fatherly discipline or, or his judicial judgment or something else altogether? I'm not actually sure that's the right question to ask. If God disciplines you and you ignore it and continue living life your own way and never turn from your stubbornness, as Lewis points out, hell is the result. You have chosen a life apart from God, and that is what you receive. But if God disciplines you and you repent, that is, if you own up, and turn from your sin and turn to God, if you turn from your stubbornness and listen to God's voice and walk in his ways, then God's loving discipline had its effect. And the question comes, how do we know? How do we know that if we do that, if we turn from our sin, if we turn to our God as stubborn as we've been, how do we know that our Father will receive us back? That brings us to the last point. How do we delight in God? We'll sing the songs of deliverance, listen and be satisfied, beware your stubborn heart, and then let the heart of God fuel your song. What is God's heart toward you? What is his disposition? What is his desire? Some think that God is harsh and cruel and cold, and some would say that by talking about hell, I've endorsed that picture. I don't think that's so. In fact, I think such accusations lack imagination. We've already gotten a glimpse of God's heart in this psalm, verse 8. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. Verse 10, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Here we see it once more in verse 13. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Why does God want Israel to listen to him and walk in his ways? Is it just because God is a, is a bit egomaniacal, self-centered? Right? Does he have control issues? He just needs everyone to do life his way. No, it's because God's way really is the best way. And he longs to bless us. Verse 14, he says, I would soon subdue their enemies and my hand, turn my hand against their foes. Verse 15, those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. Verse 16, but he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. You see, God is saying, if only you would look to me for life, I would give it. 
If only you would look to me for blessing, it will be yours. Rather than experiencing the discipline of our father, we would know the blessing of our father. This is the same thing God said through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 4, 14. Oh, Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? It's the same thing God said in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 18. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. It's the same thing Jesus said as he stood outside Jerusalem in Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. God longs to feed us with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. He desires to satisfy us. Meaning when we look to him, we receive the, the best of the best, which doesn't mean expensive cars and fancy clothes, because that's not the best of the best. God wants to give us himself, which is why he gives us his son. How do we know that God loves us? How do we know that, that God is ready to receive us if we turn to him? How do we know if we uh, turn, we will find life and not judgment? Well, we look to Jesus. We look to the cross. God sent Jesus in the world to obey perfectly in our place. Jesus became obedient. He listened to the Father, even to the point of death. For the joy set before him, Hebrews says, he endures the cross. The Father gave his Son for our sin. Then Jesus rises from the dead, defeating sin and death once and for all, which shows that obedience uh, does not always make life easy. It certainly didn't for Jesus. But it also shows that the end is life, and that life is for us. How do we know? How do we know it's for us? Well, Paul says in Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has given us the most precious thing he has, his son. Jesus has given us his very life. What more could God do to prove his love for his people? He sent his son to save rebellious people from eternal damnation by suffering in their place. Right? Let that love of your father so move you, so enthrall you, that you want nothing more than to live for him. Let the love of your father who longs to bless you move you to listen to him, which means the love of the father will fuel your joy as you pursue him with your whole heart. You want to sing for joy, right? You want to find satisfaction in life. Beware of your stubborn heart and insisting on your own way. Meditate on the Father's love, His grace shown in the cross. Know that the Father loves you. Know His longing for your soul, that He wants your good, your satisfaction. And then listen to His voice, read His word, do what it says, not to earn His favor, but to receive His grace and to open your mouth wide that He would fill it. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we need you and we long for you. We long for your blessing on our lives. We long to know you more. We long to draw near to the throne of grace, to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. We long to, to have intimacy with our Father and know delight in our Savior. 
We pray, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would pursue you with our whole heart, that we would find satisfaction in you and in your Son by the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.